0: It's always always interesting the way that that God puts us together, um, especially in couples, that we we tend to be matched with somebody who's so much different than us, that there's something uh, that lures our heart um, about the other. Deb and I laugh that uh, we're very different from each other in a lot of ways. Uh, We like to joke that uh, we call ourselves the calculator and the leaper. Uh, I am a calculator. Uh, I, am, I have a very analytical mind. Uh, I, I told you a couple nights ago that I used to carry yellow legal pads around with me all the time. And I, I still do that. I have kind of notebooks I carry with me. And, and when I have to make a decision, I, I calculate things out. Um, that, that's just sort of my nature. Uh, my wife is a little more faith-oriented. She's a, a leaper. She kind of takes leaps of faith a little easier than I do. Uh, one of my my favorite moments in our marriage, uh, we had just had uh, our second son, Noah, and I was teaching at the university that I'm now a part of, Azusa Pacific, and, and I had been teaching there for a couple of years, kind of on one year contracts, and they had offered me a, a permanent position. But right before I was going to sign the contract, I got a call from Southern Nazarene University saying, "Hey, we have a, a position open. Would would you come here?" And so we were really torn, and, and, and we didn't know what to do. And so we needed to make a decision. It was, a, it was just a typical night for us. I sat down at the kitchen table, and I took my yellow legal pad, and I wrote right down the middle of the line, I put APU on one side and SNU on the other. And I started doing the math. You know, what was going to work? What wasn't going to work? Uh, California's expensive. Oklahoma, they're still giving land away. Uh, uh, APU will connect me to the broader church, but... But SNU will help me be part of the denomination a little bit more. I mean, we are doing all that kind of calculus. And while I'm doing that, my wife's <laughs> kneeling at the at the the, t- the chair uh, in the living room praying, Oh, Lord, give us some wisdom. You know, this uh, is sort of our, our typical way. But what's funny is we have four kids and, and we've got two that are like me and two that are like her. And and we decided that you can kind of determine whether you are wired as a, sort of a calculator or leaper based on how... How you learn to swim. Uh, That we knew Caleb was going to be a calculator when we were trying to teach him to swim. He's our oldest. He's a sophomore in college right now. But when we were trying to teach him to swim, we would go to this pool in our neighborhood. And and first of all, before Caleb even got out of the van, he would check out the whole pool area to see if there were any rough kids. Because if there were rough kids there that day, we're going home. Or we're just not even going to try it today. But if, if everything was safe, we would get to the pool. And then he would do this. he'd look across the surface... If there was a bug floating in the water, a leaf that might bring disease of any kind, uh, you know, we had to clear the pool. And, and then once it was all okay, then he might might swim. Noah is this big kid, our second son, and he is this, this wonderful, just this kind of ball of energy. Noah is a leaper. I mean, Noah, we would pull up to the pool, and as soon as we opened the door, it was like Noah was yelling, cannonball! Woohoo! You know, just running and jumping in the pool. And Jonah, our third uh who's uh, now a freshman in high school. J- Jonah is a calculator also, and, and Joe was so funny learning to swim. He would he would stay on the top step, you know, for like 20 or 30 minutes, and if that worked out okay, he'd go the second step, you know, and, and we might just get our hair wet by the end of the day. We'll, we'll see how that goes, and, and Sophie, our youngest, uh, who's a sixth grader now, but Sophie, when she learned to swim, she would sit at the side of the pool. I just remember, she's so cute. She'd sit there and, and she loved popsicles and she'd be eating a red popsicle and have it all over her face, you know, and it'd be a hot day and, and I'd be swimming with the boys and she'd just all of a sudden, just out of the blue, decide she's jumping in and she would just yell. She'd just say, dad, jumping in, you know, and she'd just trust, she had this faith that I could get all the way across the pool before she drowned. Uh, <laughs> but, but some of us are kind of wired in those ways and, and so tonight... Um, Tonight, I mainly want to speak to those of you who are calculators, uh, which my guess is is most of us. Most of us probably find sort of leaps of faith a challenge. Um, and I think God's okay with us who are calculators. I, I want to say, I, I think God wired me this way because he needed that. And, and between you and me, I kind of, you know, when I have church boards or education boards, I kind of like to fill them with calculators, with people who are analytical and sort of assess the situation um, but I want to talk tonight about a calculator and a leaper who happened to be father and son. And, uh, and so if you have a Bible with you tonight, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter seven, Isaiah chapter seven, I'm going to read in just a moment, um, at the 10th verse, but you know, you're the Friday night crowd. And so you're really, really spiritual, um, So if it's okay with you tonight, I'm going to do kind of heavy stuff. And so, you know, if you're already sleepy, just go ahead and lean back at this point. Um, Because you're going to have to stay with me just a little bit, because I need to set up this text. The text is about a king by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz always makes the bad king list. If you get an encyclopedia of the Old Testament, for example, and you open it up, Inevitably, somewhere in that encyclopedia, they'll give you a list of all the bad kings of Israel and Judah and all the good kings of Israel and Judah. Ahaz always makes the bad king list. And I always feel a little bit bad that Ahaz makes that list. And so I want to defend Ahaz a little bit tonight. But let me, let me set up for you Ahaz's problem, and then we'll get to the text. Um, if you know Israel's history, it kind of goes something like this. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is one of, I think, one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. It's the chapter where Israel comes to Samuel and says, we want a king. Uh, You see, up until this point, they'd lived without a king. Uh, When God brought them out of Egypt, he wanted them to not be like that empire that they just left. And so he was in the wilderness, shaping them to be a different kind of people in the world, a, a people who could live with him as their king. Which then inevitably leads to the book of Judges, which I know is a really weird book. But the heart of Judges is this. They don't have a king. And, and in some ways that's good because they rely on God. So whenever they need a deliverer, which they need from time to time, God raises up one. And they're always crazy. I mean, they're just insane deliverers and judges, right? People like Samson and, and Barak and all those kind of people. My favorite is is Gideon. Uh, and my favorite text in Judges is Judges chapter 7. It's the one time Israel finally has a fair fight on their hands. And uh, they have 32,000 men. And God says, you have too many men. So, so Gideon asked, how many are scared? And 20,000 raise their hands and go home, right? And, and so he goes, well, now we're in trouble. He says, yeah, but you still have too many. So go down to the Wadi Kishon, go down to the river and watch them drink. Now, most of them will drink like they had mothers who raised them. Uh, They'll drink with cups and they'll drink like normal people drink. But some of them are just going to be some some of the unique people in life who stick their faces right down in the water and lap it up like dogs. Watch for them and set them aside. And so he watches and sure enough, 300 out of that 10,000, they drink like dogs. And he sets them aside. Please understand the humor of this text. He now has less than 1% of his original army, and it's not the good 1%, right? It's the, the unique, the special 1%, the, the drink like dogs 1%, right? But this is the army that God, you know, if you know the story, they surround the Midianites, they blow the trumpets, smash the jugs, light the torches, and the Midianites turn in and kill themselves. So the point is, God is their king, And so on one hand, it's wonderful in Judges because God is your king. But on the other hand, it's bad because everybody does what's right in their own eyes. There's no kind of source of control. So in 1 Samuel 8, they come to Samuel and say, you are old, which is not a nice thing to say, but you are old. And I think when they say that, they mean not only is Samuel old, but the whole way of life is old. And we're worried about where your sons are going to take us. And so here's what we want. We want a king so we can be just like all the other nations. That's a very important line. We want to be like all the other nations. And God says, tell them it's a terrible idea. Kings are so expensive. April the 15th is going to roll around every single year. They're so expensive. They put your sons into armies. They put your daughters in their palaces. Kings are really expensive, and they're going to take away the spiritual vitality of me as king over them. They say, no, we want a king. So they get a king. They have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And after three kings what God said happens. Kings are expensive and they have essentially a civil war and they they break apart in two. The northern nation takes 10 tribes and and they're called Israel, oftentimes called Ephraim in the Old Testament. Those 10 tribes are ultimately destroyed by, and here's, I'm gonna help you tonight. Uh, This will be on the test. Uh, There's an ABC of Israel's history. The A is Assyria. We'll see them in just a moment. Assyria comes and destroys, ultimately, those ten tribes. The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, with the capital city of Jerusalem, Ahaz is the ruler of those two tribes, and his capital is Jerusalem. The B in Israel's history is Babylon. Eventually, Babylon will come and take Judah and Benjamin into captivity. And an awful lot of the Old Testament centers around that exile into Babylon. Babylon. But the sea in Israel's history is Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian comes and delivers them, and they get to go back to Jer- Jerusalem and rebuild, and that's where you get Ezra and Nehemiah. Are, are you with me? Are, have I lost you yet? Okay. So this is a period just before Assyria is going to come and destroy Israel. But let me tell you what Ahaz faces. Two nations, Aram and Syria, have formed an alliance. Everybody's worried about Assyria. Assyria is the big dog in the neighborhood. Um, Assyria is gaining power and everybody's worried Assyria going to come and attack, attack them. And so all these little nations are trying to form alliances and Aram and Syria want to form an a alliance with, with Judah, but Judah doesn't want to do that. So what's going to happen, and what's about to happen to Ahaz is this. Aram and Syria have formed an alliance. They're going to come down. They're going to attack Jerusalem, and they're going to kill Ahaz and put their own king in so they get Judah to align with them. Are you with me? So in the midst of Ahaz freaking out that these two armies are going to come and attack him, and he's panicking, he's staying up all night, he's not eating right, he's losing weight, his wife is mad at him, his wives are mad at him, Ahaz is having a very, very, very bad week. And it's all falling apart. And right in the middle of it, the preacher shows up at the door. Isaiah, the prophet, knocks at the door. And says, Ahaz, I have a word for you from the Lord. And the word is this. Chill out, Ahaz. That's in the Hebrew. If you know the Hebrew, that's what it says. (laughs) Chill out, Ahaz. God's got your back. These two nations that you're worried about are going to end up being nothing. God is going to protect you. God is going to take care of you. And if you don't believe him, just ask for a sign. Make it high as heaven or deep as Sheol. Ask for a sign for God is going to take care of you. And that's where we find ourselves in this text. Um, Chapter 7, verse 10. Again... The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave, as low as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I won't ask, I won't test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you also are tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son. She will name him Emmanuel. He will eat butter and honey and learn to reject evil and choose good. Before the boy learns to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring upon you, upon your people and upon your families, days unlike any that have come since the day Ephraim broke away from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, I know it's already been heavy, but one more kind of heavy part. I think as we read the prophets, uh, an old professor of mine always used to say, we have to learn to read the, the prophets at sort of three levels. And we have to, first level, we have to read the prophets in the context in which the book was written, in which the prophet spoke. And then with many texts, and this one in particular, this is a text we usually read around Advent season that we have to read that second level in the light of how Jesus embodies this text and lives into these hopes and expectations. But then tonight, I also want to help us read it at a third level, how this this expectation still speaks to us. Are are you ready? So the first level is, what what did this say in its context? Then how do we think about Jesus? And then how do we think about us? So Ahaz has a problem. (laughs) He's terrified of it. And the minister shows up and says, don't worry. God's going to take care of it. In fact, ask for a sign. And what I love is what Ahaz does. Ahaz goes into spiritual talk. Ahaz makes it sound spiritual, right? He says, oh, far be it from me that I would put the Lord to the test, which sounds so righteous. Now, I love that Isaiah sees right through this, that this is just God talk. And by the way, we are really good at God talk. Um. When I sensed the call to ministry and I was preparing for ministry, uh, you know, both my grandfathers were ministers, but my, my mom's dad uh, died at 53 when I was just a kid. Um, but I had a very close relationship with my dad's dad, uh, with Harold Daniels, and, and a wonderful guy. But, but when he knew I was going to ministry, he, every time we were together, he was giving me advice. And I'll never forget, one day we were driving in the car, and he would just give me advice out of the blue. We're riding in the car together, and he said, Oh! son and he always called me that son 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 because he couldn't remember my name he couldn't remember anybody's name unless my grandmother was there coaching him but um but he'd say son son just remember someday you're going to be leading a board meeting you'll love this kevin says, someday you're going to be lo- leading a board meeting and they'll say it's god but remember it's really money um <laughs> that you should laugh at that that's really true uh, because what happens in a board meeting is, is when things are tight and when things are tense, somebody inevitably, whoever uses God first wins, right? So who, if you don't want to do it, just do this. This is good advice. If you don't want to do it, just say, you know, I just really don't feel like God's in that. Because the person across the table can't go, well, I think he is in that. Because then, then you leg wrestle in the middle of the table. It doesn't work, right? You know, so whoever uses the God card first wins. And so Ahaz thinks, I got the God card. Oh, far be it from me that I should put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah, thankfully a prophet, says, get over it. (laughs) I love this line. You drive me crazy. This is my translation of it. Ahaz, you drive me crazy. Is it enough that you have to drive me crazy that you drive God crazy also? And here's what's going to happen. You didn't ask for a sign, but God's going to give you one anyway. A young woman is going to... Give birth. And she's going to give birth to a child. And you will name that child. The child will be called Emmanuel. If you've been around the church a little while and sung a couple of Christmas carols, you know you can look down the footnote. Emmanuel means God with us. That this child will be referred to as God with us. And he says, you know, before, before he even gets to a certain age, these two kings that you're worried about, before he even gets to a kind of age of accountability... These two kings you're worried about will be no more. Now, let me say that when I read this text, I feel so bad for Ahaz. And this is why he makes the bad king list. Because he doesn't trust God. He takes out his legal papyrus and he draws a line down the middle. And he says, you know, on one side, listen to Isaiah. And on the other side, he writes something like this. Make alliances. Make alliances. Because what Ahaz ends up doing is he ends up making unholy alliances. By the way, that, that's an awful lot what we do. Ahaz went around to to other nations, and in particular to Assyria. He melted down all the gold in the temple and paid Assyria off for protection. Um, my wife doesn't like when I do this, but she's not here. Um, I always think it's sort of the godfather text. It's... It's as though he pays the nation off, and the king says, "Some of them' going to come to you." anyway, um, she doesn't like my do that. some of them will come and I'm going to collect, and, and that's what he does. Um, but he makes these really unholy alliances. We, we do that often. We feel pressure. We get ourselves in difficult situations. God says, hey, trust me, do what you know is right here. Follow my purposes and my will. But we, and we may use God talk, but we, even with our God talk, go and do what, what we need to do to try to get out of the situation. I have a friend who, who was working on a doctor of ministry project a few years ago that, that was studying ministers who make bad exits out of ministry. You know, there, there's, there's no shame in at some point saying, you know, I, I feel like God called me to do this for a while, but now I feel like he's, he's moving me in a different direction. There's no shame in that. But oftentimes, those of us who are in ministry, we talk a lot about that call to ministry that we had, oftentimes as a young person or as an adult. And then we get into church situations, and we find out that people are kind of hard to deal with. Um, you know the best part and the worst part about ministry? People. People. Um, <laughs> But you get into the situation, you, you know, and you want the church to grow and it's not, and you do all that kind of stuff. And so my friend was studying pastors who, who make really terrible exits out of ministry, like having an affair, or stealing from the church, or, or taking their own life. And generally what he found, there were some exceptions, but generally what he found was, was really disconcerting. It was that, that for a lot of the people he was studying, they didn't know how to make a graceful exit, so it was better to make an ungraceful one than try to find a way to make a graceful one. So the affair was a way to, to take the pressure over here and to relieve that pressure by, by just sabotaging it all. Are, are you with me there? It's, it's very disconcerting. And I think what applies there in ministry applies to a lot of us. That, that God says, hey, trust me on this. But the calculator in us says, Isaiah is crazy. God, you have no idea what you're asking. I've done the math. There's no way out of this thing. And I feel bad for Ahaz, because he gets a, he's a bad king. But he's a bad king because he's a good mathematician. Because he calculated it out and said, Isaiah, you're crazy. Ar- Aram and Syria have... major armies with serious weapons, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And so Isaiah says, well, then God's going to give a sign. Now, here, again, are you with me still? Got really quiet in here. Um, Turn the heat down. Um, That first level is to say, what is God doing in that context? Now, Now, be with me, okay? Don't don't freak out yet. But that first level, I would say, is this. Most Old Testament scholars would say, when Isaiah says this child would be born, because of the way he's talking about it and the the timing and the framework of it, most scholars say, in the context, Isaiah is speaking about Hezekiah, the son that would be born to Ahaz and to his household. And here's what I want you to see. Hezekiah, so put something in Isaiah seven, go with me to Isaiah 36. Because in Isaiah 36, Hezekiah faces almost the identical situation that Ahaz faced. Only I want you to see how Ahaz deals with it. Chapter 36, verse one. Assyria's king Sennacherib marched against all of Judah's fortified cities and captured them in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So here's what Hezekiah faces. If you think Aram and Syria were bad, you haven't seen nothing until you've seen the armies of Assyria. Assyria has come to the neighborhood. They've laid waste to Israel or Ephraim. They've laid waste to Syria. They've laid waste to all the nations around Jerusalem and Judah. And they're coming for Jerusalem next. And Hezekiah faces the the biggest army in the world at that time. The only superpower in the territories coming to get Hezekiah. And you want to talk about a bad week. If you think Ahaz was freaking out, Hezekiah is super freaking out. Because he knows his days are numbered, the people's days are numbered, Jerusalem's days are numbered, Assyria is going to lay waste to them. And guess what happens? Isaiah doesn't even show up at the door this time, he's getting too old. He just sends Hezekiah a letter. And the letter says basically the same thing. It says, don't worry about it. But I've got to show you what happens first. If you have 36 still open... Look at verse 13. The field commander stood up and shouted in Hebrew at the top of his voice. This is, this is Assyria, the king of Assyria. This is his messenger. Shouted at the top of his voice. Listen to the message of the king, Assyria's king. The king says this. Don't let Hezekiah lie to you. He won't be able to rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust the Lord by saying, The Lord, Yahweh, will surely rescue us. This city won't be handed over to the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah because this is what a serious king says. Surrender to me and come out. Then each of you will eat from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own well until I come to take you to a land just like your land. By the way, as he's saying this, he has his fingers crossed behind his back. It will be a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah fool you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Did any of the other gods of the nations of their lands from the, uh, save their lands from the power of the Assyrian king? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sefervarim? Did they rescue Samaria from my power? Which, uh, uh, which one of the gods from those countries has rescued their land from my power? Will Yahweh the Lord save Jerusalem from my power? I, I know you're not excited about this, but this is my favorite trash-talking script- passage of Scripture. It, um, this for you young, well, medium young people who are Holy Grail fans. This is totally that, go away before I taunt you a second time. Uh, this is totally that text. <laughs> The messenger comes to the wall and says, Hello, is anybody there? And, and, and he says, Don't trust Hezekiah. He has not rescued any of these nations. We got a pickup truck with all their gods in the back and we're about to come over that wall and we're going to put Yahweh in the back of the truck with all the other gods. Again, this is, this is so huge. This is such a huge threat for Hezekiah. And it, again, he, he freaks out. But Isaiah sends him a message. Chapter 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he ripped his clothes, covered himself with mourning clothes, and went to the Lord's temple. Verse 5. When King Hezekiah's servants got to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say this to your master. The Lord says this, Don't be afraid at the words you heard, which the officers of Assyria's king have used to insult me. I'm about to mislead him. So when he hears a rumor, he'll go back to his own country. Then I'll have him cut down by the sword in his own land. So Isaiah sends a message, just like he did to Hezekiah's father Ahaz, saying, God's got your back. God's in this. I know you're freaking out over there, but God's in this. I know the math doesn't make sense. I know you've calculated this out and know you're in serious, serious trouble. But trust God. I want you to see what Hezekiah does. This is verse 14. Hezekiah took the letters from the messenger and read them. Then he went to the temple and spread them out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord of heavenly forces, God of Israel, You sit enthroned on the wings, creatures. You alone are God over all the earth's kingdoms. You made both heaven and earth. So, Lord, turn your ear this way and hear. Lord, open your eyes and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words. He sent them to insult the living God. It's true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have destroyed all the nations and their lands. The Assyrians burned the gods of those nations with fire because they aren't real gods. They're only man-made creations of wood and stone. That's how the Assyrians could destroy them. So now, Lord our God, please save us from Sennacherib's power. And all the earth's kingdoms will know that you alone are the Lord. You see, when Ahaz got the message, he, he kept calculating and created alliances to get himself out. When Hezekiah faced almost an identical problem, only multiplied by about three. When the Lord said, Hezekiah, trust, don't worry. Hezekiah ran to the temple, threw himself before the altar. And here's my paraphrase of his prayer. Lord, you're God. And if I die with you, I die with you. And if we live with you, we live with you. But you are God. And I will trust you. And can I tell you that I believe it's in that moment that what Isaiah said in chapter 7 came to pass. That Hezekiah became what Ahaz failed to do. He became the king that reminded the people of something the people always forget. That God is with us. And Hezekiah always makes the good king list, by the way. But he makes the good king list because he leaps in faith before the Lord and says, you're in this and I trust you. I said there's a second level. We have to think about this text in the light of the way the gospel thinks about it in the light of Jesus. I hope you'll forgive me for this imagination, but a couple years ago, I was in the Garden of Gethsemane and um, I took my son Noah to Jerusalem and we, we were standing in the garden and we, <laughs> we went with a bunch of biblical scholars, which is always a mistake because when you're with them, a bunch of archaeology scholars, um, you know, you go to all these sites and, and if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a rock that has a plaque that says, this is the rock that Jesus prayed at as he, you know, sweat drops of blood. And when you have a scholar with you, they, they always say something like this. Well, that might be the rock. I mean, there's a number of rocks in the garden. We don't really know. It's not like Jesus carved his initials in the rock, right? You know. But I prayed at that rock anyway, because that's the rock. As we're looking at that rock, that looks like a good rock to pray on. I can just imagine Jesus with a yellow legal pad and a line down the middle. For I'm quite convinced Jesus was analytical. He knew the signs of what was going on. And in my imagination, he draws a line down the middle and writes, Thy will be done on one side, and make a deal with the Pharisees on the other side. For the temptation had to be that when you calculate this out and can see where it's going, then it's going to end badly in brutality and beatings and crucifixion. The temptation had to be to go back to the Pharisees and say, you know, when I said I was Lord of the Sabbath, I, you know, I meant that in a kind of metaphorical way. You guys do what you do. We'll do what we do over here. <laughs> can I help you set back up those money-changing temples, tables in the temple? When I said I I was king, what I I meant by that is, you know, to somehow make alliances to get out of what's coming. But we worship Jesus, and Matthew rightly can go back to Matthew 7 and say we knew this was coming because the prophet said, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we will call him the Emmanuel, the Emmanuel, the Emmanuel that's above all other Emmanuels. Because he, in that moment where he risks himself to death itself, trusting that the one who called him can even raise him from the dead. As he leaps in trust, even into death on a cross. He reminds the world of something we all too often forget. It reminds us that God is with us. God is with us. But I, what I want you to hear tonight is really at that third level. And I, again, I felt like this was a good Friday night message because you're, you're, you're the cream of the crop to come on a Friday night. What the church needs today especially young people, lean in here. What the church needs today and what the world needs today, I think, are really good calculating leaders (laughs) who are good with a yellow pad and a calculator. The world needs people who are analytical and can figure out the math. But what the church and the world really needs are Leaders who, at the end of that math, even when it doesn't quite calculate, but we know that we know that we know that God is in it. Leaders who are able to lay that aside to lay before the Lord and say, "If we live with you, we live with you, and if we die with you, we die with you. You are God." For what the church needs and what the world needs are, are people who are able to live with a kind of faith that reminds the world of something we, we too often forget, that God is with us. God is with us. This April, it'll be eight years that, that Deb and our family, that we've been at Pasadena First, I want to be a little bit careful because we're recording this and people listen. Um, Pasadena First is a great church. has one of the richest histories really in the denomination. It was the second church started after Los Angeles First was started. Um, it, it's older than the denomination itself. I, I preach from Brzee's pulpit every week. We stole it and we're not giving it back. Um, those of you who are new, Brzee was the founder of the Church of Nazarene. And it's a beautiful pulpit and significant. I had been on staff there from 1991 to 1996 as a college pastor, just part-time. They were really as you know, more of a blessing to me than I was to them, I think. But I went to teach at Southern Nazarene University and pastored a church in Dallas and in Richardson, Texas, and we were having a great time. But during those 11 years or so, the church went through a lot of turmoil. Some of it just because a church gets to 100 years old and it has to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. <laughs> What's, what is it going to be next? Leaders were challenged, lay people, it was difficult. All in all, they, before I got there, they, they'd had two senior pastors and three interim pastors in a span of about seven years. People had left. The people who stayed didn't like each other. Um, there was a lot of talk that the, the church not only had its best days behind it, but the church might close. So when they called and said, Scott, they, they'd like... For you to be considered at the church, I knew enough about what was going on to know that wasn 't a compliment. <laughs> in, in fact, one of the when I said you know that 's really kind, but we 're really happy in dallas and, and and church is going well. these people love us, church is growing. we can afford to live here We, we left California when we had our second kid, we got to the midwest, had two more because there 's nothing else to do and uh, <laughs> And and we can afford to raise them here. I, I don't know that we can afford to even raise them there. And, and I don't know that I'm ready to walk into that situation. Hung up the phone. I, I had a terrible night. I, I didn't sleep much that night. When I woke up in the morning, and Deb woke up in the morning, she said, you look awful. I said, you know, I, this is really troublesome. That that church was so good to us. I'll tell you just one quick story. We'll see how quick it is. But um, one of our first weeks there, our first months there back in 91, we were poor seminary students and my wife and I had saved about a month and a half worth of money because we thought we'd be really employable and we weren't. Um, But we ran out of money within about six weeks and, and our rent was due on Monday and we didn't have the money to pay the rent. And so Sunday we went to church and Sunday afternoon we we balanced the books and we realized we didn't have the money to pay rent on Monday and we were going to be in trouble. And so I knew I was going to have to call my parents or, well, her parents wouldn't have helped us, but uh, and mine probably might wouldn't have been happy about it. Uh, and we just didn't want to do that. And, and so we, we argued most of the afternoon. Finally, we got so tired of arguing with each other, we decided, let's just go to church tonight. So we went to church. Mainly so we wouldn't have talked to each other for an hour or so. Um, we walked into church kind of late, and the, the pastor at, at Pasnez at the time, HB London, was in his last few months at the church, but he, was, he was preaching about faith. And I think it was one of those Sunday nights, I, I tease him about it every once in a while, it was one of those Sunday nights, I'm not sure he was really prepared, because he started calling on people to testify, which is always a good method. Um, but he was preaching on faith, and he said, you know, somebody started a business. He said, come here, talk to us about this business. This is the kind of step of faith you're taking. He was calling on several people. He said, Scott, I say, come in, come up here. And he goes, this is Scott and Debbie Daniels. They, they just moved here to go to seminary. And he said, Scott, you know, tell us about the step of faith. And I, I I, tried not to cry or complain a whole lot, but I, I just said, yeah, you know, we moved. And it's, it's really, you know, a big leap of faith, and we're struggling a little bit, but, you know, kind of, bless God, we're trusting God, you know, and that stuff I knew I was supposed to say. Um, but it was so funny, people afterwards came to meet us, and they would shake hands with us, and, and many of them had folded up money in their hands when they shook hands with us, which is really awkward, I, I'd never had that happen before, and it's really odd, because you can't look, right? Because when you shake hands and somebody does that to you, it's not like you can look and go, a five? Seriously, I'm in seminary. <laughs> right? Trusting God here, trusting God. Um, but we just started putting stuff in my, in my pockets. And, and on the way home, Debbie said, did people give you money? And I said, yeah. So when we got home, we emptied it out on the table. And I, I think our rent was like $360 a month. But we emptied out our pockets. And this is crazy, but, but we had enough to pay our rent the next day, plus $10. And you have to know my wife to know this great story. My wife, tears running down her face. She goes, this is so like God. We can pay our rent and we can order a pizza.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: but that church, that church in those five years that we were there, not only were they, they were lovely and supportive in those kinds of ways, but, but they just loved us. And, and so I said to Debbie, I, it, it felt so wrong to hang up the phone last night and say, no, it, it I said, I know this sounds weird, but it, sound, it felt like my mother called me and told me she was dying of cancer and she needed me to come home. And I said, I'm too busy. And I said, I, I know this is crazy, but I feel like we need to call them back and we just need to go out there and see it. And when we see how bad it is, we'll know God's not in this, right? <laughs> so she prayed for a day and said, okay, call them back. So we went out for four days. And the first day, we were there by ourselves, and, and it was a Wednesday, and we snuck around the church, kind, trying to hide behind poles and things to see, and nobody was there. It, it, was, it was really awful. Um, Thursday, we spent the day with a realtor. That was really awful. <laughs> Whatever confirmation we needed, God wasn't in it. That was the day. It was funny, each night when we'd go to bed, I'd say, Debbie, scale one to 10, how are you? The first night she said, I'm a one. And I said, that's great, because I'm like at 0.8. The day after we spent with the realtor, I said, um, what are you now? She goes, minus six. I said, yeah, whatever minus infinity is. Um. The third day, Friday, we spent with the church board and, and bless their hearts. These were people who love God and were just trying to fix a really broken problem. And for most of the day, they were putting a lot of pressure on us to come and make this thing work and to fix it. And, you know, they were selling us the whole day. That, And it just felt like so much pressure. And I felt so bad for them. And it just, it was just odd. And we got to kind of the final meeting Friday night. And I'll never forget, we were sitting in this conference room. And they started in again. They, they started asking questions after we'd heard all this all day. How would we respond? And It just felt like all that pressure. And finally, the chairman of the board stopped and said, and he's a big guy with, grew up as a hockey player, big old hands, scary, intimidating guy. He suddenly started to sob. And he said, you know, he's a business guy. So I have been trying to work for three days to make the math work on this. And it doesn't work. He said, I've been trying to get it to work, and it doesn't. He said, I just need to say to everybody, we're just going to have to trust God. And, and, and Scott, you do what you have to do, but we're just going to have to trust God. And he just was sobbing. And one by one, everybody started just giving up. And and they're all crying and we're crying and there weren't any more questions. It was just drooling and slobbering all over each other. And it was just crying and just praying and it's the weirdest interview I've ever been a part of. You know, it was just and and some of you won't like this, but I'm I'm leaving Sunday. Um the we walked out of that room and you got you've gotta understand my wife. She wasn't raised in the church, but she's deeply in love with Jesus, but she's she we walk out and she looks at me and she goes oh crap <laughs> and i said i think i know what you mean by that and she said yeah she goes now i feel like we'll be we will be disobedient if we don't do this and i said i totally feel that way my mother was so angry she threatened to lay in front of the moving van she's not very christian i i had I had one of the significant leaders in the denomination call me and say, Scott, I'm really worried about you. I don't know if this is the right thing. Um, No one will ever remember that you taught at SNU, and no one will ever remember you pastored a great church in Dallas. They'll only remember that you were the guy that turned out the lights in Pasadena. Thank you. Um, It was wise counsel, by the way. But God had already spoken. I can't rehearse eight years of stories with you, but other than just to say the first two years in Pasadena were really challenging. It's the hardest I've ever worked at anything. But God was in it. (laughs) And God is in it. And an old church is coming back to life, and and please understand this. I don't think it's because I'm not gifted. I I just think it's because I got to the end of my calculations and I didn't know how to make the math work. And finally just had to say, God, you're God. If you're in this, you're in this. And and I say that tonight just to say I, I don't... I don't know what God's calling you to do, and I don't know what you feel trapped in right now, and I don't know what the temptations for accommodation or the temptations are for you to to not follow through on what you know God wants you to do. And I know that many of us are calculators, and we do the math, and it just doesn't work. But what the world needs today, what the church needs today, are people who remind the church of something we too often forget. That God is with us. That God is with us. And so tonight, you may need to lay yourself before the Lord. Um, these altars are a good place to do that. You, you may just open yourself up to the what God wants to do in you where you are, but... But Hezekiah and Christ in particular reminds us that God is with us. But God's still looking for some people who will trust him. When
1: peace like a river attendeth my way When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou
0: stand together. If you need to pray, come and pray.
1: Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless and has shed.
0: I pray for uh, all of us tonight, but some in particular who are facing really deep challenges, relationships in turmoil, finances upside down, opportunities that looked great but now are rugged and difficult. that you've placed upon our life, that are just way bigger than anything that we're able to do in our own strength. God, I pray you'd protect us from our own foolishness that we all are so easily self-deceived. We can use Ahaz's God talk to talk us into a lot of things. But I pray for some tonight who know that they know that they know that you're in it. Who know that they know that they know the right thing to do. Who know that they know that they know what it means to be obedient to your will. But it just seems more than they can do. I pray you give us by your grace, the ability to leap and trust like Hezekiah with his face down in the temple, trusting you to save him from the Assyrians. Like our Lord and Savior who, who embraced the cross, trusting that the Father who called him Could also raise him from the dead. So help us to trust you tonight. For it is so sweet to to trust in you. And so help us tonight, we pray. we pray it in your son's name. Amen. 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 We sang a chorus a little bit earlier. Worship team, I don't know if you can come join us, it was perfect for tonight. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah. I'd love for us to close with that.